Good morning. Um, as Jerry mentioned, my name is Scott Taylor. Uh, my wife, Michelle, and I have been here at Calvary for, for a little while. Um, we started coming here back in 1987. Um, I am not a pastor here at the church. My job, um, I work for a marketing company here in town, but occasionally have the opportunity to speak and always appreciate um, the chance when given to stand before you and present the Word of God. Before we get started this morning, I just want to go ahead and pray again and ask the Lord to bless our time together and what we do. Lord, this morning as we look into your word, I pray that you would quiet our hearts. I pray that you would clear our minds. Lord, there's so many places that our minds go when we sit still. Today, I pray that they would be here. I pray that they would be sensitive and alert to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we wouldn't just walk out of here and say that was a good service or a bad service or even forget that it happened, but I pray that through the power of the Spirit, through the reading of your word, that you would impact us in a way that makes us change. Help us to respond to the Holy Spirit in a way that draws us closer to you. Help me that I might clearly communicate exactly what you would have for us this morning in a way that exalts the name of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I said, my job is um, with a marketing company, and some of you know that with that job, I spend a decent amount of time traveling. Um, my travel schedule, I'm sure there's pr- people in this room whose travel schedule would make me look like a homebody, but I jump on airplanes and spend the night in hotel rooms and rent cars with some amount of regularity. And if you do that at all, if you don't, you're maybe blissfully ignorant of this, um, and that's completely fine and maybe even good. But if you travel with some amount of frequency, you are very much aware of something that the travel industry plays on very heavily, and that is the word status. Does anybody know what we're talking about when you talk about status within the travel agency? Well, very simply, it's this. All of these travel companies, whether it's airlines or car rentals or hotels or whatever it is, they want you to become very loyal to their particular brand. Delta wants you to fly Delta every single time. And the way they do that is this. They set up these programs by which the more that you fly, the more status that you get. And they create these names for different levels of status. It usually starts, most of the programs start with something like this. It means if you do a little bit, you're silver. And if you think of silver, that means you're worth something. You're not nothing. You're not going to throw it away. But, you know, it's nothing really crazy. And then the next level, usually you go to gold. And it's like, okay, now we're talking. Now you've done enough to earn it. We will refer to you as being gold. And after that, they go in a bunch of different directions. Maybe it's platinum. Uh, maybe it's diamond, maybe it's titanium, but all these different levels of status, and that's they actually use the word status to make you feel like you're kind of special when you start to obtain status. They use these words to try to make you become very loyal to their particular program. And they actually treat you differently. With the airlines, the way it looks is they'll, they actually, they, they do this and people put them on their bags. They send you a luggage tag with your description of status on it so that you can put it on your bag. That luggage tag doesn't give you anything. It doesn't open any doors. It does nothing but show everyone else in the airport that you have status. And people put these on, on their, on their bags. At check-in, if you have status, you get to go to a special line and you get to cut in front of everybody else and walk right up and they say, how can I help you? 
You board the plane early so you have easy access to overhead bins for your luggage. You actually have priority in getting upgraded to the really good seats. They even create private lounges inside the airports so that you can walk away and get away from everybody else and provide free food because you have status. In the, in the hotel, it's, it's pretty similar. They might get an upgraded room. You get to take advantage of late checkout. When you walk up to the desk and show them your ID, they say, hello, Mr. Taylor. Thank you for your titanium status. And you think, you're welcome. And it's strange the way the psychology of all this works in a way that makes you feel somehow special because you travel a whole lot and it works. And it's like, I'm going to fly Delta because they're going to treat me like I'm somebody special. And the airline industry, the travel industry, very intentionally creates a class system. And they don't just create a class system. They very openly treat people differently because of the class system that they have created. They're purposely saying the person who travels a lot is more valuable than the person who travels infrequently. They don't hide their partiality. They promote it. They have business reasons for doing it. It works for the travel industry. It's not the way the church is supposed to operate. See, in here, there's not supposed to be any status. Our status is shared because of what Christ has done for us. And outside of that, we are absolutely completely equals. But this passage this morning talks about the reasons, not the reasons, but some of the ways that we treat each other differently. It breaks down really into three different segments. Verse 1 is very simply, it's the command. In verses 2 through 4, we have an illustration of the command, the way it plays out. And then through the rest of this part of the chapter, we have a little bit of explanation of what that really looks like. So we'll start with the command. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So if you're a believer here this morning, when this was written, he's talking to you. My brothers, my brothers and sisters, the fellowship of the believers, this is the instruction. Show no partiality. And it says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, basically as we live our lives as Christians, doing the things that we are supposed to do, don't treat one group of people as if they are more valuable than another. Don't treat one group of people as if somehow they're more valuable than another. Chapter two through, or verses two through four, we start to get into the example of what that means. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, showing partiality is, a, is, I think we all know what that means. I may interchangeably use the word this morning, discriminate. I want to make sure you know what I'm talking about when I say discriminate, because that word comes with some connotative meaning. If you look at the definition, there's really two different ones. There's one that's fairly neutral. It says, to distinguish by discerning or exposing differences. So discrimination can simply be mean just recognizing that this is different than this. There are qualities here that are different than the qualities that are over here. There's no value judgment or anything like that. It's just there's a difference. 
The way I think most of the time we think about it is to make a difference in treatment or favor on a basis other than individual merit. That's what we think of as discrimination sometimes. And that probably ties more closely to the idea of partiality, but I may use those words a little bit interchangeably as we go through this morning. So the illustration that we just read in verses 2 through 4 is is very specific. It talks about someone who walks into the building and you can tell they are wealthy, they're well put together, they may have nice clothes, just you can tell maybe the car they got out of when they rolled up to the church. You can tell that they're wealthy. The second person you can tell for maybe the same reasons that they are not wealthy. Maybe they're very obviously poor in the way that they're dressed. The illustration about how we treat people is very specific. I want to look this morning. The command in verse 1 is actually very broad. Show no partiality. So as we look at that this morning, rich versus poor is one of the many ways we can do this. And I think we could probably quickly imagine or list a bunch of reasons why we might do that. We might, we might think that someone who is rich, we can get more out of that. We like to be in proximity to that. There might be benefit for that. And we might think there's not as much as we can get from someone who doesn't have potentially as much to offer. But I want to expand beyond that a little bit as we think of partiality and how we're not supposed to display it to anybody. Because there are really a bunch of categories and a bunch of ways in which we can do that. We can use employment language as a way to come across some categories where people discriminate or have differences. Employment language says it's against the law to show partiality or discriminate on the basis of ethnicity, sex, age, or disability. And sometimes that list goes on and on and on um, in today's society. And so as we think about this this morning, I want to think about the different ways in which we show partiality even beyond the illustration that is given here. And part of the reason I want to do that is this. Rich versus poor may not be a distinction you would make ever. And, and and if we stop there, you could easily dismiss and say, well, I'm okay. This isn't really for me. But the command is to show no partiality. And somewhere along the way, there are ways in which all of us discriminate or show favoritism because we are attracted to something and turned off by something else that may exist in somebody's life. And I want to... I want to be very literal in the instruction that we are to show no partiality. Now the problem, we can imagine some of them, but the problem with treating people differently based on these superficial distinctions, I'll read verses 3 and 4 again, it says, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, here's here's the first problem. When we show partiality, when we discriminate, when we make those distinctions, we are treating people differently than God treats people. We are becoming these judges with evil thoughts and we are treating people differently than God treats people. So how does God treat people? Acts chapter 10 says this, verses 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, 
the 1.4 billion people in India, in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In Romans chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 7 through 19, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. See, God takes all these things that we value, all these distinctions that we make, all this status that we create, and he pushes all of that aside. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for that reason, he sent Christ and he is absolutely fair and he is consistently just in his relationships with every single person. His mercy is for everybody. It can't be bought by someone who might have resources or advantages that someone else doesn't have. There's no special upgrade for you because you've been in church a lot. There's no exclusion from the special lounge because someone was not exposed to the gospel and Christianity as much as you have and doesn't have that same amount of teaching or experience. In fact, the reality is is that what we view as advantages for navigating this world often end up as disadvantages for the things that really matter. Further down in this passage, verses 5 through 7, listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? We look at them sometimes as advantages. Sometimes those things get in the way of our dependence on God. Because we trust in those things, we rely on those things, we depend on those things, we pursue those things, and really they're getting in the way of our relationship with God. So the first problem really is we are treating people differently than God treats people. And when our treatment of people is inconsistent with his treatment of people, we are acting as judges and we are undermining the free grace of the gospel. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you're here today and and maybe you haven't been here a lot, you're a, a visitor, you've been a couple of times, maybe this is your very first time that you have been here. The most important thing that that I want you to hear, that we want you to hear, And it's been presented already this morning in Jerry said it. It's been presented in the songs that we have sung. The most important thing that you can hear this morning is this. Because of Jesus Christ, salvation, if you know what that means, forgiveness of sin, a relationship with God, eternal peace and reconciliation with God, this is available to you today no matter who you are 
or what you've done. Sometimes we self-discriminate because we disqualify ourselves from the grace and mercy of God because we know who we are and what we've done. We recognize that we are unworthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. But God doesn't disqualify us. God doesn't say, everybody else, but maybe not you. God says that he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Titus 3 verses 5 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, so we can't earn it, we can't pursue it, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you're here this morning and that sort of makes sense, but not completely, anybody that's been in front of you this morning would love to talk to you after this service is over and explain what that really means. In fact, probably anybody in this room, you could turn to the person you're sitting next to or the person you came with this morning, and they would love to talk to you and help you understand exactly what that means. But back to the church and how we act and how we respond and our need to be consistent in the way that we treat people, to be consistent with the way that that God treats people. If God says, I will accept you as you are, and the church's actions say, we'll accept some of you, but the rest of you just don't cut it. What message do you think the person who doesn't know God is going to hear? It's not a casual thing to make superficial judgments and treat people according to those judgments. When we do that, our actions may be the very thing that someone uses to seal their hearts from ever being open to the gospel. Think about that. Just the way that we treat people, just the way that respond people, just the way that that we talk to or don't talk to someone reflects the attitude of the church. I've probably said it from here before. I know I've said it um, in Sunday school classes and in teachings because at this point this has probably been 15 years ago. I was having lunch with a guy I met just through through work. And we got on to church and religion and the gospel and the fact that I went here to Calvary and just what our involvement in church was. And I will never forget sitting across the table from him and saying, Scott, I would, I would be so much more ready to believe what the church is teaching if Christians acted like they believed it. If their actions were consistent with what they say they're supposed to be. And so no matter what we say, 
if our actions are inconsistent with what we are supposed to be according to Christ. If our actions are consistent with inconsistent with who God is, no matter what we say, they're going to they're going to see what it is that we do. So the first problem really is when we treat people differently than God treats people or when we act in a way that is inconsistent with God's treatment of people. The second thing is this and I've and I've I spent a lot of time trying to just struggling with this in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That judges with evil thoughts. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what that meant. And really, as, as close as I can come to understanding what he's saying is we're setting ourselves up as authorities or judges as if we somehow deserve the grace that has been given to us. You know, most of the time when you think of a judge in a courtroom, a judge in a courtroom can disqualify himself from being a judge if he has a record of breaking the law. You expect the person who sits up there to fully understand the law and know how to discern it and know how to apply it, and you actually expect him to be one who believes it and and is consistent with it because of the work that he's done and just the ethic and the standard that we hold um, him to. And in a way... He has, in a quite literal way, through law school and probably through working his way up in, in, in the system, he has earned the right to be there. He has earned the right to make pronouncements and to bang his gavel on his desk and say, this is what's going to happen. We haven't earned the right to be judges. In fact, we read just a couple of minutes ago In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 19, at the end of that passage, kind of as an add-on to what what the, the, the specific part where it said that God shows no partiality, it said this, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now in this passage, this is specifically directed to the children of Israel as they have been freed from the slavery of Egypt and have headed to the promised land. But I think we can very easily apply that today when it says, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Love the sinner because guess what? Before Jesus Christ and your acceptance of him as your savior, you were a sinner. And in fact, today, the things that we still do, we haven't earned the right to judge. Far from it. We ourselves have been redeemed, and it's not because we deserved it. In Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, it says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us because we showed some sort of special something that said, I think I want that guy to get saved. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. How significant is it that God would move towards us while we were sinners? Well, to understand that, I think we need to look at the character of God and who he really is. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. 
Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Psalm 5, 4, and 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. Does that sound like someone who would not just move towards a sinner, but sacrifice his son to move towards a sinner? Everything about God is completely opposed to the sin that is in our hearts. But yet, yet, he moved toward us. He may hate the sin, but he loves us. We like the phrase that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Our execution of that, you know... God hates the sin, but he moved to sinner be, to, towards the sinner because of this. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, it's not some great mystery, some amazing thing that we would love a God who has given to us all that he has given to us. That's not amazing. If you're, if you're blessed enough where your kids were able to know your parents and your grandparents fit that grandparent mold, it's not really crazy that your kids love their grandparents. Because chances are, when they show up to see grandma and grandpa, what do you want? <laughs> All the stuff that you never got that they wouldn't let you have is just free flowing, man. The bank is open. The candy store is open. The TV is on. There's no bedtimes. You want it. You got it because I'm a grandparent. Of course, your kids are going to love because the world is theirs and, and grandparents, all they want in return is to love these kids and send them home. <laughs> That love relationship is not surprising at all. And so for us to love God, of course, how could we not? But for God to love us, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son for our sins. The richest sinner and the poorest sinner I have one thing in common. Both are sinners. And both can share equally in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God instructs us not to make these distinctions. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, verse verse 8 of James 2, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin or convicting the law or, or, and are convicted by the law as, transgress, as transgressors. It's pretty black and white, isn't it? I'm a very black and white person. Sometimes the dismay to the dismay of my family because it's like we're presented with something and it's like, well, we can do this or this. It's like, it's not that simple. Ah, it is to me. <laughs> I'm black and white. This verse could not be any more black and white or clear cut. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. We okay with that? Do we walk out of here not really being impacted by this? Because, yeah, partiality, how, on the scale of sins, really, what is that? Do we rank sins and we're okay with that? God doesn't really look at that way. Again, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin or convicted by the law as transgressors. Verse 10, uh uh-oh, here we're about to get in trouble. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. I think it could say, now, if you don't commit adultery... And you don't commit murder, but you show partiality. You've become a transgressor of the law. Because in verse 9, it said really clearly, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So we can't minimize that. You know, this isn't, this isn't one of the chapters that we really go to and just Beat people over the head with it. We have other sins where we beat people over the head. But this is all about how this church impacts this community and this world. And if we decide that some people deserve what we have and are worth the time to invest in making sure they understand it and other people are not worth it, Man, what are we doing? And we discriminate against a lot of stuff. And I'm, please hear me, I'm not saying that we are tolerant or accepting of, of, of sin and things that God judges and stands against and condemns. We absolutely have to do that. But we set ourselves sometimes up in opposition to the people who are living in those sinful lifestyles because they're there. And we almost write them off. Like, it's probably not for you. Aren't you glad God didn't write you off? I heard someone's testimony recently and and the life that they lived up up to into their 20s was just, absolutely a mess God miraculously brought someone into their life 
and through a work that only God could do, called them to himself and redeemed them, and they're saved. And that person would have been like, I don't think so. My partiality, my judge, would have said, probably not. So it kind of gets down to, why why are we here? You're like, man, how do we get that question <laughs> out of a verse shown partiality? But as, as, as a church, as believers, why are we here? There's a catechism answer that says, we are here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I learned catechism when I was a kid, and it's amazing. You can still say some phrases, and it's been a couple of years, and, and it's still there. So the, how, do, how do we actually do that? The way that we actually do that is to accurately represent him to a world that doesn't know him or misunderstands him. We need to accurately represent Christ to a world that doesn't know him or misunderstands him. And if God is love then maybe we're supposed to love. And we're supposed to do it without partiality because the command, the command is really, really clear. So as you leave here this morning and go into a week and think about your interactions, think about who you represent Think about what your purpose is, what your objective is, why we're here. We're here to accomplish some things. We're supposed to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I admit I'm impacted by what you shared this morning. 1.4 billion people. Do you realize that? There's like 300 million people, 350, something like that in the United States. So take everybody in the United States and throw another billion on top of that that don't know the gospel. And very few people in this room will ever go there. But we're here. And there are going to be people that walk through these doors who need to understand and have Christ accurately represented to them. You're going to go to work tomorrow. And you're going to interact with people who need to know Jesus and have him accurately represented to them. You're going to go on vacation. You're going to travel. Maybe you'll sit in one of those fancy lounges. (laughs) Everywhere we go, do we accurately represent God who is love? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here together. Just for the the, the chance to lift our voices in song and praise you and worship you. And thank you for what you have done. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, not through my words, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit this morning. I am overwhelmingly confident that this delivery this morning has been imperfect. 
But your word has been read and we know that it is powerful and we trust it. We trust that you will apply it individually to every single person here with the needs that we have and draw us closer to you and make us more faithful servants and help us to repent where we need to repent so that we might go out and live for the glory of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.